You're listening to Diffuse Tap with Kenny Estes and Isla Creme. Today we're schmoozing with David Sherman, president of Quanzic Management, about all things SPAC. What has he seen work slash not work recently? Why SPAC ETF may be the better way to invest and where the most lucrative SPAC opportunities are hiding today. Enjoy. Sweet. Tell stop sticking up. And I think that's now. So everybody's back. Hopefully you had a good little conversation. When we're in the big room, if you wouldn't mind saying muted, it does make life easier for everybody involved. But just so you know what to expect, if this is your first time, this is a weekly event. This is our 90th time. That is that is not how that works. 90th time doing it, which is crazy. Um, Isla and I were discussing what we're going to do when we get to 100. If anybody has any great ideas, let us know. Um, but we're going to briefly talk about Diffuse Tap, where you are right now, and then about Diffuse. Um, and then we're going to have a fireside chat with Mr. David Sherman, who is our expert speaker du jour. And then we're going to do two more rounds of breakout rooms, kind of similar to what you just experienced about the topic. Or you can use the chance to network, which is the key piece of why we do this. This is first and foremost a networking event. It's a largely alternative investors from all over the world coming together. And we try to do three rounds of uh, small groups of four or five, just to connect, see what happens. Let's serendipity do thing. Insides, we do have a speaker, so we do want you to come away a little bit more intelligent, which is why we have Mr. Sherman here today. And if you like this format, we do do, um, at the prompting of the audience, nothing to do with us, we have started doing local in-person versions of this all over currently the U.S., but probably London next month. The next one is in Delray Beach on February 24th. Nope, that's not a word. 24th, hosted by Mr. David Culver. So if you're going to be in that neck of the woods, make sure to look them up and sign up. Why do we do this? Diffuse is an alternative fund incubator. So we listen to all your talk in these breakout rooms and see if we can potentially turn something into a fund. Um, so that's kind of our jam. One of those funds that we're in the process of IPOing as we speak and doing a big raise is our DD30, a top 30 market cap weighted index fund that actually has like a redemption mechanisms and, you know, arbitrage opportunities, things that you would expect from an institutional grade product, but does not exist in the market right now. And then we do have two yield farming funds as well. One is market neutral, where we don't care about the price of Bitcoin. And one is market long, where we really do. So... That is enough about us because you all are here to hear from Mr. David Sherman. And David, I am horrendous at introductions. So would you mind unmuting yourself if you are muting, muted, and give a little introduction to the crew here? Sure. And what's the time just so I can stay on track? A couple minutes at your leisure, sir. We're pretty cash. Right. Okay. So uh, first of all, I'm David Sherman. I run Kohanzik Management and Crossing Bridge Advisors. We've been around since 1996. We have $3 billion of assets under management. Uh, prior to starting Kohanzik, uh, when I was a child, uh, I spent 10 years as a real child at Lucadia National and left there as a senior executive. And before that, I was a mere student at Washington University. Um, in addition to owning and running Crossing Bridge and Kohanzik, I also am now an adjunct professor at NYU Stern Business School. And we're always looking in my global value investing class to the MBAs for really great speakers. Um, that way I don't actually have to teach. So feel free to hit me up if you think you know anyone or you're interested. Uh, that's in the fall. Uh, I just sent to everybody my email and my phone number if anyone needs to follow up uh, in general questions. Um, obviously, we're always happy to answer product questions as well. 
but I'm going to try to keep this meeting very specific to SPACs in general rather than put on my tin cup and promoting skills. So that's my introduction. Um, should I go into SPACs? Well, I will uh, we'll just kick off with the questions. Um, how did you get into SPACs in the first place? So almost everybody in the SPAC market, including myself, thanks, Aaliyah, uh, comes from either credit opportunities, which primarily means stressed or distressed, or, or capital structure arbitrage. So they come from convertible bond arbitrage, closed-end fund arbitrage, or they come uh, from the likes of that. So it's really uh, the elbow, sharpest elbowy group in the, in the community. Um, the first SPAC I got involved in was in 2005. And, you know, the reason I got involved is the same reason we're all meeting here. There are, SPACs are really interesting because there's lots of different ways to think about investing them depending on what your goals and risk parameters are. And more importantly, it's a nice way of getting a principally protected piece of paper with uh, some yield and a free call option on the upside. So the way to think about SPACs in the most simplest form before they close a transaction. So let's start with there's SPACs and then there's deals that have closed. Deals that have closed is an equity, right? You're buying a company that's merged. And if you like Rover.com at that price, you should buy it. And if you don't like Rover.com at that price, you should not own it. But prior to that period, right, since SPACs, as you all know, have both a liquidation date and a redemption put, the shareholder has the right to redeem the shares, right? You basically have a convertible bond with a zero coupon and a two-year maturity or less. SPACs typically have a life of two years or less. You're getting no coupon, but you're typically buying it at or below your your collateral value that's protecting you that you're entitled to. And if you keep the warrants, you have a convert. If you sell the warrants to increase your yield, you have a busted convert. And those dynamics makes it very interesting to everybody else. And then of course there's, you know, how do they raise money after they announce a deal from a pipe? And how do you get sponsor capital risk shares? So there's all these other dynamics, or do you build a portfolio of warrants that make it interesting? So that's how we got involved because there's so many pieces and it's so deal dynamic that it makes it exciting. That's great. And let's dig in a little bit. And uh, some of this is a little definitional as well, because there's a lot of terms the audience might not be aware of there. But Aaron Winkler has a question, what percentage of SPAC investors pull back from the deal? So it, it, and tied to that question, you mentioned a pipe. What is a pipe? How does it play into the SPAC, SPAC dynamics? How much money is raised through the SPAC itself? How much money through the pipe? Like, can you talk a little bit about kind of post you announce the deal, you have all these investors lined up and then what the dynamics are from there? Sure. Okay, so let, let, me, um, let me first make a caveat. Most of you are familiar with SPACs because of what I call the meme SPAC period from effectively Labor Day of 2020 to St. Patrick's Day of 2021. That's when all these SPACs traded at ridiculous prices and they hadn't announced the deal. They were trading at more than the trust value that was in the collateral that you had the right to if you decided you want to move forward with the transaction. And it's when all of these companies that merged into deals that are now trading at two, three, four, and $5 a share, we're up at 30. So you could look at something like RMG acquisition, which stands for Riverside Management Group and LBO firms, first back where they did Romeo, stock went all the way up to 33. Their biggest client is Nikkei Trucks. Who knows if they're even going to have a truck? And today it's like at three bucks. So let's ignore the mean period when we talk about SPACs, because that is a mean period. <laughs> so it's not normal. So now, Going back, um, look, think of, first of all, the IPO and secondary purchase of SPAC 
before they close a deal is no different than bridge financing, right? They're putting up uh, capital for targets to know that there's capital there. And if the market perceives the deal as a good deal, either it's a good price or it's a good company, but that people actually want to own it like DraftKings or Latch or uh, there was a company called Navitas that was recently done or one of Bill Foley's deals, right? People will actually not redeem their shares. They'll actually either sell them to people that want to own that stock, like a pre-IPO, or they'll hold on to them in the IPO. And the secret's doing a good deal, in which case you wouldn't need a pipe, which I'll talk to in a second. And the secret there is you got to do a good deal. And they do happen. But when they do deals that are perceived as overvalued or not institutional-like, right, you get a lot of redemptions. And so Gore's, for instance, has a very good habit of getting low redemptions. They're a sponsor that does deals. They did Utz potato chips, right? So it really depends on a deal by deal basis. Generally, cash flow deals that are companies that are coming from subsidiaries of public companies that generate cash flow or private equity generally get a lower redemption level than venture capital like greenfield operations, which makes sense. Um, so depending on what the business is will depend on how much a pipe is and even if a pipe's necessary. The more a company doesn't need money, the more it gets lower redemptions. Right now, you're getting very, very high redemptions. And that is typical of the market, which means SPAC investors such as myself say, I don't want to own the merged company. Give me my interest in the collateral trust. Thank you very much. So in order to compensate for redemptions, Often companies either announce when they do the transaction, what they call pipe, a private investment public equities, which many of you are probably familiar with and some may not, or they wait until after they announce the deal and then they raise money. So we actually backstopped a $30 million financing for Leafly, for those who focus in the cannabis industry, uh, in a convertible bond, and it was after the deal was announced. And the purpose of that money is, one, we have to pay the investment bankers and lawyers because they seem to not be very forgiving and charge egregious amounts of fees. I'm just saying. Um, and two, you know, a lot of companies want to know there's a certain amount of money that will be there either to pay dividends, to pay off shareholders, to fund expansion plans, whatever. And they want that pipe as a minimum cash, right? So that's in case there's a lot of redemptions. In a SPAC's best case scenario is they raise a pipe and a lot of people roll into the deal. And now they have excess cash. And for a SPAC that's going public or any company that's going public, getting too much cash is generally a high class problem. So that answers the pipe situation. And then there's one other nuance, which I don't want to add a new thing, but you should know is there's these things called backstop arrangements. So these are various terms. The one that is most well known is either the Nomura structure or the Adelaide structure, based on the people that were the first ones to issue it. But effectively, think of it as a firm saying, I will buy all the redeemed shares up to a certain amount to guarantee that a certain amount of shares will roll into the deal. So I'll buy $50 million of the SPAC and guarantee we're going to roll. But I want you to protect my downside, either stick cash in a SPV to protect me that I can have access to or protect my downside through various mechanisms. So let's say they do the cash. So what happens is in the backstop, the guy who provides the backstop buys the shares, rolls into the deal, and he has the right to the cash in a year or two years at a guaranteed rate of return that he can put his interest into. And he can also sell his shares in the open market if he wants. So obviously, 
if you, do, if you use $10 as par, if the stock's above 10, he's going to sell. And if it's below 10, he's not going to sell and he's going to put it back to the company. So it's, think of it as an extension of a SPAC life, but it sits on a restricted cash. Those are generally not so great economics for the sponsors and the merged company because you know, they're, they're letting somebody get a free upside and, they're gonna have, and they can have their cash taken away from them if the stock doesn't go up. But the reason they make sense is they provide liquidity to allow institutional investors to be able to buy stock because if there's no float, they lose interest. So now I've covered a bunch of different pieces and probably added it more complicated, but I'm sorry. We also do backstops. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, now that you kind of dug into the, the, the why and the what um, of, the, of the SPAC itself and kind of the mechanics behind it, how did the whole idea of an ETF come about? Why, why is that a better approach? I mean, obviously, it's, it's difficult to chase up these individual opportunities because it's so deal-centric. Um, but, but how did you guys come up with the, the ETF idea and, and how are you executing it? So uh, I'll answer that. The other thing we didn't talk about is warrant. So let me just go back okay. for one second yeah. to argue that. So when SPACs get issued, they typically get issued in a unit, which means you get a common stock and you get warrants and or rights. Those rights and warrants are typically separable, okay? So that you can keep a unit, you can keep the stock and sell the warrants, or you can just buy the warrants and sell the stock. So think of it this way before there's a closed deal. The stock is a principal protected short-term yielding piece of paper with a zero coupon, where if the stock goes above 10, you get that upside. Think of the warrants, which have a five-year life and are struck at 1250 a share and can be taken away from you at 18, uh, 1850 as a portfolio of venture capital interests, right? So that's, that's just something we need to acknowledge so people know. Um, going to your remark, so we've been involved in SPAC since 2005 because they're a really good ultra-short duration fixed income like security that gives you a decent yield and gives you these sort of call options. So the industry was never big enough to do a standalone product. And with the mean period, institutional sponsors and institutional buyers entered into the market. So the market is now big enough to create a standalone product. And if you go to spackinformer.com, which is a website, we actually don't charge anything or put it for free. You can see. So as of February 10th, there were actually 708 listed SPACs in the U.S. market, just ignoring, you know, Canada and what's going on in Europe, which is about ready to explode positively. And there's $187 billion as an asset class. So it's a real class. And by the way, you can go to SPAC Informer, sign up, and every week you can get for free all the SPACs, their symbols, their last traded price, when they liquidate, and how much they have in trust and what their yield to liquidation is and do they have a deal or not a deal and who's the sponsor, which most people charge for and we're giving it to you for free. So if you wanna do this on your own and be a fisherman, you can or you can buy our product and buy our fish retail. So our product that we launched was, we, we specialize in our mutual funds in independent financial advisors and family offices. And a lot of them are looking for, uh, short-term, low-duration, fixed-income alternatives or opportunistic fixed-income alternatives. And we said, look, if SPACs have a life, today the typical SPAC is issued as an IPO with 12 to 15 months of a life. That's your maturity. Some of them have the right to extend, but they have to pay you effectively 4% a year to extend another three, six, nine months. And 
you sell off the warrants and they're over collateralized, you're getting a yield. So today, like yesterday, we bought a SPAC, which had $10.20 in trust. We paid $10. So that's 2% gross yield we're going to make either at liquidation or at redemption date if that comes first. On top of it came with uh, a full warrant. Warrants today trade around two and a half to two percent. I think they should trade around one half percent. So I think they're generally overvalued. But let's use two percent. Let's say we sell those warrants when they separate at two percent. Now we're making four percent gross, and the maturity on it was was twelve months, and they had the right to extend for another three months twice, so for another total of six months. But they'd have to put ten cents in the trust each time. So if they extend to an 18 month deal, they're gonna put 20 cents in, which is still 4% annualized. So I'm looking at a 4% simple yield on a SPAC backed by T-bills, right? To liquidation. And if they announce a deal sooner than that one year, they close and announce it in nine months, I'm gonna make 4% divided by 0.75, right? Because I'm gonna redeem, which is a higher yield. And if they announce a great deal like Donald Trump's media empire, I'm not going to sell at 40, 50, 60, 70, $80 a share because I'm not that smart. I'm going to sell, which we did, at $18 a share, which is still another 80% higher than I thought I was going to get. Right. So here's something where you have very limited downside. You have a short maturity in a rising rate environment, and you can lock in a really good return. By the way, you can also leverage it. I'm not advocating leverage, but you can. And in fact, the biggest risk to your SPAC market is that you don't hold it you don't you set your portfolio up that you don't hold it and you hit the mark and you get you get you force yourself to sell during mark to market drawdowns. So there's not a principal risk, but there is mark to market exposure. And the one thing that people don't talk about that you should be aware of is the SPAC market has always been levered by hedge funds. Typically it was levered two to four times. Today it's levered six to eight times. Right? So what's going to happen in a rising rate environment, their cost of capital for those who didn't fix it's going up. Their portfolio is going down and they're getting a tap on the shoulder. And what do hedge funds do? They sell the thing that has the least amount of loss with the least amount of recapture, which means they tend to, to divest of their SPACs. And when that happens, you can buy SPACs at 6 to 8% yield to liquidations, and then the opportunity goes away. And it goes away very short. And you can see this because most hedge funds can only lever U.S. listed SPACs. So they can't leverage Canadian SPACs. So we're buying Canadian SPAC right now at 7% yield to liquidations, which matures this year, right? And that's because they can't get leverage on it. And the same thing's happening in Europe. Europe is starting to really become what the U.S. was two years ago before the mean period of issuing SPACs. Now they're denominated in USD and they trade in either Amsterdam or London, or they're denominated in Euro and they trade in Amsterdam and London. And there are some nuances, meaning like when Amsterdam, they announce a deal, the regulators halt trading until they approve the deal, right? Which is a big nuance if you need liquidity. But nobody can get leverage on the European stuff. So that's all cheaper than the US issued stuff. Don't worry, the Europeans will figure out how to put leverage on it. So anyway, in answer to your question, those kind of dynamics is why we brought the product to market because we think there's a huge opportunity for people just to say, I don't want to worry about redemptions. If I miss a redemption, I screw it up. In our ETF, unlike any of the other SPAC ETFs, our symbol is SPC. Um, we specifically say in our perspectives, we will buy at or below trust value. So we're never paying a premium. And we specifically say that we will always sell or redeem. Others say they're going to do that, but it's not in their perspectives. There are some competitive SPACs. Um, 
USCO just came out with one under the symbol CHS, uh, yeah, CH, CSH, cash without an A. I think it's a really bad marketing idea. I would never call this a cash alternative, right? Because of the volatility mm-hmm. aspects. Um, you also have Robinson SPAC, SPAX. Those are the two that are most similar to the one we did. We're larger than both of them. And our bid ask spreads a penny, by the way, as opposed to theirs. Um, and it's about a $50 million fund that we launched in September. And for those who are really anxious to get leverage, we can tell you how you can leverage our ETF. But that's why we did it. We think there's a need for people to have money on the sidelines when they want to be defensive. And this is a good instrument. And when the market gets washed out or they have a great private opportunity or they want to invest in your fund when it's up and running, they just sell it, redeem it, and they go do something else. In the meantime, they earn a yield while they're waiting. That's great. Great context. Love the framing. Um, Very thorough answers, too. There's a whole lot of detail I know we're glossing over there. But... We do have, uh, we take it to the top of the half hour. Top that is mm. Take it to the Can half I ask hour. you one question? Yeah, sure, briefly. Somebody, Colin asked if the fund's portfolio includes any exposure to founder shares. So the answer is if you get founder shares as an anchor for free, and because we're big enough, we have a, we're one of the 100 largest, we're the smallest, we're on the bottom half, bottom of the number. Mm-hmm. We're one of the top 100 issuers. We anchor deals. And yes, the SPAC ETF will get founder shares for free if we anchor a deal on their pro rat interest. I just wanted to answer that because gotcha. that also separates us from other SPAC ETFs. Cool. Good to know. Uh, appreciate the color. All right. Well, I think we're going to do a broad first or second, I guess, technically round of breakout rooms. Um, and then once we come back from this breakout room, David, a question you've already touched on, but it's we always ask the same one, which is trends, crystal ball time. How do you see the market developing over the next year? So we'll ask you that after this breakout room, but breakout room, housekeeping items. It's a networking event. It's not a pitching event. So please be respectful to that. Be kind to one another. We do, we are trying to kind of foster a community of where we can all help each other out. It's networking 101. And then also we don't do a full participant list. So if you find somebody that you want to connect with, swap your details then and there, or join the Telegram group, introduce yourself and ask for or something and you'll be surprised. Beautiful. And uh, I'll pop you into rooms of some five, six folks in each one. Uh, David, somebody will be lucky and draw David in their room. So that'll be fun. You can bombard him with more questions. Otherwise, I'll give you one to noodle over. And what is the kind of deal that you think would be worth raising a spec for? Maybe it's uh, Donald Trump's media empire. Maybe there's some other deal that you had your eye on that you thought was worthwhile uh, putting your money behind. There's, um, a ton of, there's a ton of crypto specs. Oh, see, that's the perfect unison there. The, the, they had a baby, a crypto spec. Love it. <laughs> uh, I'll put you into rooms now and I'll pull you back in exactly 10 minutes. See you shortly. Okie dokie. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully you had some good conversations in there. And uh, David, as threatened slash promise. Um, oh, you're already unmuted. Look at you. This is not your first go around. Uh, Christopher, all time, what do you see coming down the pipe in the SPACs other than your ETF absolutely crushing it, of course? So by the way, I, I've not, it isn't my first time. I have my Google background bright lit on my face so you can all see me. Um, so uh, look, quickly in SPACs and then I'll do the world because I think that's also important. Um, but I'm not, a, I'm not a top-down manager. I'm a bottom-up manager. So keep that in mind. In SPACs, look, I think they're going to continue. To, they're very cheap. I think on a risk-adjusted basis, it is by far the cheapest asset class uh, out there today. Why? Because you can easily, on your own, you don't need to pay anybody, get a portfolio on a yield to liquidation basis with a maturity of call it 12 to 14 months, make three, three and a half percent worst case with, with collateral backed treasuries, 
right? And get the upside opportunity if they get deals closed sooner than your maturity, right? Because your discount amortizes sooner. Um, and I'm talking about ones without warrant, just the secondary stocks, or if they announce good deals. So, you know, is that a great return? Is, is something that's going to give you a profile, call it four to 8% a great return? About its capital gains treatment, not ordinary income. Is that a great return? Well, if your risk is treasuries and you can hold on to the trade, I think it's a great return, right? It just depends on how you, where that piece of puzzle fits into your thing. Um, I would tell people to be careful of participating in risk-based capital sponsor shares because a lot are going to liquidate less than I think the world thinks. I think sponsors are pretty savvy on saving their, their skin. But, you know, the duration is quite long, right? It's not just from the time they announce a deal and close it. You then have to hold it for another six months to 12 months. And meanwhile, everybody's been able to sell or buy. And most SPACs perform not so great during the unlock periods. So, and they're very difficult to hedge. So, you know, you have to look at your return profile and you want to own a big portfolio. You know, you might be the one who picked the right one, but I would recommend a venture capital approach. And on the warrants, I personally think they're overvalued. The, if you're going to buy them, you're probably going to get your best risk-adjusted return if you buy them cheap today, and then when they announce a deal, sell them that, or close a deal. Um, but I don't like them because they can call them away from you if they're successful, and, um, and they're five years, but they're struck at 1150, and it's just not, not what I think is particularly interesting. Um, there is a lot of warrant exchange-traded option arbitrage, um, so there's an opportunity. So, and then in SPACs, the biggest risk to SPACs, in my opinion today, is the amount of leverage in the system from a mark-to-market standpoint. So I think that answers your question there. Um, on the broad-based world, look, everyone's been talking about rates. Fed's going to raise three times, five times, eight times. Pick your financial pundit. They'll tell you they were right or they're catching up. I think they're starting to talk about now, but they haven't historically. And we covered this in our shareholder letter, which I'm happy to send you, is I think the big issue First of all, I think a lot of rate rates hikes are, are priced in. I think the big issue is what's the Fed doing with its balance sheet, right? I think people are not focused on the Fed's balance sheet. But just to give you a very simple example, is if the Fed decides they truly are unwinding their balance sheet, not just that the, remember, it's two components. It's that we're not reinvesting, and then it's that we're allowing it to run off, right? And they have long duration assets. But if they unwind this $2 trillion balance sheet, they're unwinding primarily investment grade structure product or Ginny and Fanny. That's primarily what they're unwinding, which means they'll be a buyer of that stuff, but spreads will widen out. Well, when spreads widen out there, it doesn't stay there. It percolates to investment grade bonds, commercial paper, high yield, bank loans, right? Bank loans, people think of a duration of nothing. That spread is real duration, right? If you've got a LIBOR plus 500 piece of paper, you've got a fixed piece of paper, basically, right? It's that 500 spread. So I think... I think people aren't aware of that. And that's really a much greater concern. I don't care if the Fed raises five times. And we run low duration and, and opportunistic money. I think that's something people have to think about and get their arms around. As a result, I actually don't think the Fed's going to deleverage quickly or as successfully as people think. Um, and by the way, it's sort of, it's a circular reference, right? If they deleverage too hard or the raise rates too hard, the world goes into a recession. If the world goes into a recession, now what? Right? Are they going to recession? The other thing is everyone's excited about where oil is going right? Russia, supply, demand. I mean, I've heard the end of oil supply demand forever. Just remember, if oil goes high enough, people drill. And when they drill, generally, that's right around when they raise a bunch of money, they, they give you a lot of attractive opportunities to invest. You invest. And then oil is high enough. 
they, rates go down, rates go up, and they market starts the the normal market cycle contracts. And guess what? You're the guy who funded oil, right? As the market's contracting, and oil prices going down. So I think all of the cyclical stuff you have to be careful about. There's a slight exception, and that's true of all the commodities. Like people are talking about a tin shortage, a, you know, aluminum shortage. The problem is the processing cost of aluminum because it's so energy expensive, right? So when you start thinking about those things, think about how they're all interrelated um, when you start thinking about the cyclicalness. That's my general overview in a snapshot. Beautiful. This is going to make a great transcript. We can just uh, pass this on as a lesson on specs. It's uh, very well articulated. We'll do another round of breakout rooms. Uh, the next question here is, more around people you've met and opportunities you've gotten through them. I'm sure a lot of the spec research that you guys do is also around knowing the right folks. Um, it would be interesting for everybody to chat about who is someone interesting you've met in the last three months and what have they done for you or you done for them. I'll pop you into rooms now and uh, we'll see you back here just uh, ahead of the hour. Coolio, welcome back everyone. Hopefully you had some good chats as per the huge. And we are going to do wrap up. I want to figure out how my virtual backgrounds work. Yes, nope, that one we did. Up next, so this is a weekly event. So the next one is, well, you guessed it, Wednesday at 10 Central, same as always, episode number 91. And we're going to be talking about community style impact investing. Deliberately ambiguous title, you're going to have to show up to learn more about what that means. It's actually a really, really interesting topic. We do have in-person versions of this. The next one is next week, February 24th in Delray Beach. So hit us up, hit up Mr. Culver if you are interested in that and uh, look him up. We do have a Telegram group. The link is already in the chat. It will also be in the follow-up email. Best shout there is just to show up and uh, just to join and introduce yourself and ask for something. Particularly that community is really good for networking um, and just kind of putting people in touch with other investor types all over the world. Um, Isla, and you're muted. Anything else that I have missed out on? I think that is it. We, oh, yeah. Go ahead, David. You go for it. I don't mean to steal. Real quick, a lot of people sent really good questions in the chat that there just doesn't have time to permit. Again, I just want to encourage you, if you want to reach out to me directly, davidaquahansic.com or call me at 914-741-9600. I'm happy to follow up. I'm sorry to interrupt you for your closing. I just wanted to acknowledge that there were questions that were good that I couldn't get to. No worries. Actually, um, David, if you want to hop on Telegram, that's another place where it's easy for folks to to reach you, perhaps. If you click that link there as well, then, uh, okay. then that's if you the teach, line. If you teach me, I'll do it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no worries. I'll, I'll send you an email after this or that. Where, where's Beautiful. the Delray meeting posted, Kenny? Or so that's a, it's in the newsletter, which goes on on Thursday, but I'll just add you to the invite. If anybody else wants to be added to the yeah, Delray please do. I'm right. That's where I live now. So Okay, perfect. Yeah, yeah anybody else? And I, I just yeah. put I put the uh, event right. It's it's a free event, so I put the event right in the chat right now. Oh, great, awesome David. List. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you, David uh, Sherman, um, for for your your words of wisdom. Uh, it was really good. Loved it, especially the macro stuff there at the end. And David Culver for hosting next week. And uh, to everybody else for showing up. Thank you so much. Um, and we look forward to seeing you in a week, if not before. See you later. Thanks so much. Bye. Have yourselves a good one, folks. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Diffuse Tap with Isla Krem and Kenny Estes. If you enjoy these conversations, join us for the live version every Wednesday-ish at 10 a.m. Central. 
In addition to the fireside chat, the live event features three rounds of networking in small groups with alternative fund GPs, LPs, and supporters from around the world. Log on to www.diffusefunds.com to register yourself now.